been substitutionary atonement. And that means that someone else is making atonement for us. This is what we see Moses so beautifully try to do for his people. Now, of course, Moses is learning on the fly. Moses is learning about salvation and substitutionary atonement and about sacrifices all on the fly. Now, we know because we sit on this side of the cross that substitutionary atonement is the work that only Christ can do, that only a perfect sacrifice can do, that Christ did on the cross by covering our sins with his blood and by making us right with God. Atonement then is often associated with a word called propitiation, which simply means to satisfy. So this is sort of the layout here. The blood of Jesus covers our sins and reconciles us with God, atonement, and satisfies his wrath, propitiation. Moses attempts to do that, and he fails. Not because of his motives, but because there are necessary things that must happen for effective saving atonement. So what we can do, we can look at those things today. I want us to learn about the necessary atonement of Christ from our story today. The first thing you need to see about atonement is this. Atonement is necessary because our sin brings on the wrath of God. Atonement is necessary because our sin brings on the wrath of God. I hope that before it is all said and done that you don't see me as some fatalistic sort of person. Someone who has like a fatalistic, always negative vantage point. I know that at times when you start talking about the things of God, it can't be all fluffy unicorn cloud playland. But I also know that when we, what we really often want is fluffy unicorn cloud playland. We want to feel good. We want to hear the Word of God, but we only want to hear the words of God that make us feel good. That is why certain su- Sunday morning gatherings throughout our city, throughout this country, and throughout the world are filled to the brim with people. Because... The message is always positive, it's always fun, which we all know typically has little to do with what's actually happening in real life. The truth is that people are depraved to the core, that because of Adam, we are born into sin and iniquity, that we are born without hope in the world. And as I say this, we will all agree and we will all nod our head and we will all move on in our mind. But I think what this story tells us today is that we are way worse than we actually think. I'm sorry for having such a fatalistic vantage point. But we are way worse than we actually think. We are often able to quickly point out the sins in others or sins that are most egregious. But often we are quiet when it comes to how we personally have transgressed the law of God or how egregious our own sin actually is. (coughs) And today we see that everyone in our story stands guilty before God. From Moses I mean, from Aaron, who is their leader, to the other leaders, to the people who actively participated, and even, I imagine, there were some people who stood by and did nothing. Everyone is to blame for the sin that is before them. Something we must grasp, and I've said it before, I'll say it again because it's important, and there is an aspect of a new audience almost every time. Something we must grasp is that all sin is equally unacceptable to God. Here's the thing. Our sin is not the same in the sense that there are worse sins than others. 
I've gone over this a bunch of times, and I can do it again for you after this if you want me to. But there are worse sins than others. Not all sins are the same in the sense that they are all equal. The Bible speaks of this often. Proverbs 6 is one. If you want to jump away from the sermon for a little bit and go look at that, that's fine. Proverbs 6, 17. We can talk about more after that, after this. But something that must be clearly understood is that every sin is the same in the sense that it brings on the wrath of God. Although not every sin is the same in the sense that it's the same in uh wretchedness or depravity, every sin is the same in the sense that it brings on the wrath of God. And even though we may not see ourselves as depraved as the Israelites in our story or even others around us, we still stand before God condemned because of the sin in our life. This thought reminds me of the story that I just mentioned earlier about B.B. and Emmeline in that chair. What I didn't tell you is that Bennett had been trying to clean up those little foam beads. And if you know a few things about those, you know that they don't clean up well. They're light. They blow everywhere. They stick to the curtains. They stick to the body. They stick to the bed. Anything, the carpet, anything that they can stick to with static electricity, they stick to. So when I finally get to the kids, they're covered in foam beads. And the curtains, and the walls, and the bed, and you name it. And as I'm trying to get an assessment of the situation, I ask Bennett what happens, and he sort of just stares at me and then looks down at the floor and, you know, gives, he's trying to give his own assessment. And <clears throat> he's looking at me like Aaron. Dad, I was just playing and this chair was here and popped, out popped snow. I don't know exactly what happened. And as I, thinking, as I was thinking about this story, two thoughts went through my mind and one of them we will discuss in a minute. But another is this, a mess like this made of small things is not easily cleaned up. Bennett needed me to do it. He needed a substitute cleaner. But the other thought is this, he thought he had cleaned up some and that things were better. He recognized his wrong because Anna had told him that he was going to be in trouble when I got home. So he tried to make it right. So he put all of his energy to cleaning up, cleaning up presumably, presumably before I saw it. But even if he had, listen, this is invaluable here today, friends. Even if he had cleaned up every bit, even if he had cleaned up every piece, there's still a problem. He didn't have a mirror. He could have swept the things off the drapes and the bed and stuffed the chair back full of stuffing and maybe even dusted his arms off. But without a look at himself, he was not able to see how ridiculous he looked and that his mistake was literally written all over him. Friends, how often are we wearing the pre-wrath of God in the form of our own sin and hardly recognize it? How often do we think, if we can just get a little phone back into the bag, then no one will know. All the while, we are still covered in the evidence of our mistakes and our sins. I feel like so many Christians feel accomplished if we can just hide our sin or avoid others so that they appear okay. We are like, foam beads? What foam beads? Sin? What sin? All the while, we are covered in it. This is why church community is so important. 
This is why active church discipline is a real part of every church or that church is not obeying the Lord. Can I tell you something that's vastly important, friends? Vastly important. Because I think we have deceived ourselves, me included. Even if the people of God had destroyed the calf before Moses came down the mountain, even if he never saw evidence of their sin, (coughs) they would still be under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not determined based on whether your sin is large or small or visible or private or socially acceptable or not. The wrath of God is on those who are the unrepentant people of this world. After all, friends, nothing can be hidden from God. Even if they had cleaned up everything and Moses was was completely ignorant of what had happened at the foot of that mountain, the wrath of God would still be on them. And friends, even if you can hide all of your sin, all of your struggles from your friends, from your church, from your family, the wrath of God is still on the unrepentant sinner. And for the Christian, there is sort of a non-wrath wrath that you experience. It is, a, it is a separation, an anxiety, a lack of peace, a division. Now we know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, but we face these things on a daily basis while we are here on this earth. It prevents us from living abundant lives. You can't hide your sin from God. We have deceived ourselves into believing just because people don't know about it means that we are okay. Okay. What was the wrath of God that was brought on the Israelites that day? Well, Moses drew a line in the sand. And he says, if you're with the Lord, come here. If you want to stay in that, stay over there. Levites come to him and they took their sword and they killed 3,000 people that day. And at the end of our section today, it says that they, there was a plague brought upon these people. Now, we don't know exactly what that was, whether it was they not entering the promised land because the audience did not enter the promised land, or maybe it was an Egyptian plague was brought out of the box. Oh, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt? The Lord said, maybe, I don't know. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt? We'll see, we'll see. Maybe he brought out one of those old Egyptian plagues that were in the box. But the point, nevertheless, is that they faced the wrath of God and that they were guilty and deserving of that wrath. One way I know that we don't rightly understand or we don't have a right understanding of God and the seriousness of sin is how we look at passages like this today. We look at passages like this and we say, how could God kill 3,000 of them? Why would he bring a plague upon them? Well, the short answer is that they had broken the blood covenant that they had made with God. They had worshipped another God. And God is a jealous God and he will not share his glory with another. But another answer is simply that we think of God in the wrong way. We say, how could God kill 3,000? Where we should say, God only killed 3,000? Remember, his plan was to wipe out the entire nation and start over. 
And out of over a million, possibly two million people, he only wiped out 3,000. <coughs> Even though we can't understand God and we can't see and know him in full, we know that it's a means of grace when, you're gonna, when you are deserving to wipe out an entire population and you choose to not and only go with a little bit instead. But we say, how could God do that? And we are, we are referring to his punishment. When a Christian with the right focus would say, how can God do that? And we refer to his grace. Do you understand the difference? How can God do that? And we're saying, he's mean and, and cruel. And we refer to his punishment. And a Christian who understands justice and who understands God's mercy and God's grace and God's righteousness, we say, how can God do that? And what we're saying is, how can he forgive me? How can he save me? We're referring to his grace. Church, we don't take sin seriously enough, especially our own sin, especially those sins that we have in our mind justified as acceptable. We need atonement because of our sin. All sin brings on the wrath of God. We need to know what the Word of God says about sin. We need to study up and we need to trust our theology over our instincts. Because our theology is objective and our instincts are not. Their theology was, you shall have no other gods before you. Their instincts were, Moses is gone, we should worship. Trust our theology and not our instincts because our theology is objective and our instincts are not. Our sin brings on the wrath of God, but also atonement brings about the propitiation of the wrath of God. Where there is a problem, there is a solution. Moses knew there was a problem with his people. Moses knew that something big, big was about to come from God, and Moses steps in. Here Moses is really starting to get the atonement. He is starting to get how God operates in salvation, this sacrificial atonement. He understands that payment is necessary. He understands that sacrifice is necessary. He just doesn't quite understand the qualifications of that sacrifice. So he, gaze, he goes and he makes intercession for his people again. In his mind, he is thinking, what will bring about propitiation? Or what will satisfy the wrath of God? What will make these people accepted again in the eyes of God? And he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, take me. He says, I will go in their place. Blot me out of the book of life. Now, we don't know exactly what this means, the Lord's book, but he could be saying, take my life as a propitiation, blot me out of history. That's what he could be saying. Take my life, let the world forget about me. But it seems like he's saying something more than that. It seems like he's saying, Lord, let me be accursed so that my people can be saved. Blot me out of the book of life so that my people can be saved. We see this again we see other examples of this again in the New Testament. Paul said, I'd rather be accursed so that my people would know Christ. Moses is stepping in here for his people. He's also setting a great example for us who find it difficult to step on the doorstep of our next door neighbor in order that they may be saved. He's ready to step through the gates of hell for them. Moses understands something very clear, that the wrath of God must be satisfied, propitiation. And that there must be a blood sacrifice, atonement. But he's missing one key element 
And that is our last point today. Atonement must have an acceptable sacrifice. Atonement must have an acceptable sacrifice. What Moses offers to the Lord is a beautiful picture of what Jesus was actually going to do for humanity. Let's let's read what Moses says again. Verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. The request of Moses, I've already stated, is that he would be stricken for the sin of his people. This is a wild transition from the last time Moses was on the top of the mountain. Do you remember what happened, what the conversation was between Moses and the Lord the last time Moses was on top of the mountain? The Lord said, Moses, here's what we'll do. I'll just wipe them out. I'll just get rid of them. I'll start over. You and I will do this again. Take two. Israel 2.0. I'll wipe them out. And Moses goes back up to the mountain and he says, Lord, don't wipe them out. Take me out. Moses, it's a wild transition because Moses could have taken the easy way. Moses could have taken the easy way. And this is just one of about 20 comparisons to an acceptable sacrifice that would come later, who could have taken the easy way out and stayed in eternity with God, who humbled himself and went to a cross. He was despised and rejected, died for his people. The Lord had already given Moses an out. He said, I'll make it easy to you. I'll, I'll destroy them and we'll start over. Moses goes from being able to take the easiest way out to literally laying down his life for his people. Moses understood that this covenant, for, uh, that in this covenant, sin could be forgiven through the sacrifice of a representative, and he was their representative. Philip Ryken says this on the subject, As long as it was the right person, one man could die for the people's sin. With this thought in mind, he began to pray in a way that no one had ever prayed before. Here was a whole new kind of intercession. Moses was presenting himself as a sacrifice of atonement, offering himself to God as the substitute for Israel's sin. This should remind us of, our, of us of our study in John, John 10, 11. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for his sheep. Later in John, we see greater love has no man that what? He would lay down his life for his friend. This is such an honorable and really a gesture that wouldn't be topped for another thousand years or so. But the Lord turns it down. The Lord promised to punish those directly responsible and blot them out. And he turns down Moses' offer. Now he did this as a means of grace because he could have taken out an entire nation. He could have taken out everyone and started over. But he only took out a few, probably the leaders, the under leaders under Aaron, I would guess if I were guessing. Because they are, you know, there's multiple examples in the Bible where the leaders are more responsible, more liable. You know, where leaders are punished when even they might not have even directly committed sin. Not punished in a condemnation way, but punished along with the people. 
So he does this as a means of grace. And Moses offers this great sacrifice. Why, why did this sacrifice not work? Why did God turn Moses down? God turned Moses down because even though he was not guilty in this situation, he was guilty as a man in this world. Yes, atonement requires a willing substitute. And yes, we have that in Moses. But to truly atone for sins, the Lord requires a perfect sacrifice. An unstained, unblemished, spotless sacrifice. Moses was the stand-in in this narrative where we needed the lead actor to play the role. And we get that. A few thousand years later, Jesus, he leaves heaven. He comes to this earth. He lives a perfect life. Much like Moses, when he was born, he was born under uh, tumultuous circumstances. He was driven out out of fear for his life. Much like Moses, he was the redeemer of his people who was really despised and rejected. He was a prophet from God. But unlike Moses, when he said, Lord, I will take this cup. Since this cup cannot pass, I will take this cup. When he said that, the Lord said, yes, yes you will. When he said that, the Lord said, you are the acceptable sacrifice. The spotless, the unstained, unblemished, beautiful Lamb of God. Where Moses had the right motives and the right intentions, Jesus had the follow through. Jesus had the ability. Friends, I have a few quick takeaways that I want to give you that you hold on to today from this message. The first is this. All sin is much more serious than we can ever comprehend. All sin is much more serious than we can ever comprehend. Hidden sin, sins of omission, unintentional sins, long, deep-rooted sin, sin that is not homosexuality, divorce, adultery, uh, murder, all of those other sins that we deem as um, acceptable sins, socially acceptable sins, sins that the world says are not sins, that they're just part of who you are. All sin is much more serious than we can comprehend. Not only because it creates a great chasm between us and God, but because of this second point that you need to understand. All sin brings a wrath greater than we can comprehend. Friends, I want to tell you, I want to tell you, and I want, I want you to be careful in hearing me on this. I don't want you to hear me say you're not a believer. But I do want you to hear me say you need to check your heart, like John Chris would say. Well, not more serious than that. If you think that hiding or avoiding or not addressing your sin can help you avoid the wrath of God, can set you right with God, can coincide with a, a fruitful Christian life, we are deceiving ourselves. 
we are deceiving ourselves. Just like we talked about last week, just like we talked about the week before last, and just like we'll talk about 100,000 times as long as you're here. Sin must die. It has no place in our lives. Now listen, there is a vast difference between being perfect and being a sin slayer. Right? You will not be perfect. You will make mistakes. As a matter of fact, you will fall right back into the old traps that you've fallen in. But a sin slayer never says, meh, happened again. <laughs> a sin slayer says every time, never again. Never again. A person who is killing sin in their life, a person who has a proper understanding of the wrath of God, a person who has a proper understanding of what brings us in and out of fellowship with God, will look at sin, and every time they fall away, they say, never again, and then they'll start putting, implement, uh, implementing things into place that will prevent them from going back down that path. All sin brings on a wrath greater than we can comprehend. Another thing, and this is vastly important, we cannot play the role of the mediator and save people. We will find ourselves failing like Moses every time. It seems like we have good intentions to play self-help, to be someone's guru, or to be a spiritual advisor. But trust me, friends, as a pastor, I've understand one so I've understood one thing more prevalently than anything else is that if I try to be that person's person, I will fail, they will fail, and we'll all be disappointed. Moses could not be that person for those people. Yes, he could step in. Yes, he could pray. Yes, he could keep people accountable. But ultimately, friends, we have to point people to Jesus. We have to point people to Christ. If we do anything else apart from pointing people to Christ, now what I'm saying, I couldn't think, I've, I try to think really well of how to word this in a way that make you understand it without me explaining it. So I'm going to uh, explain what I mean. If we give some sort of worldly advice, some sort of help, self-help advice, and we don't make Christ as the forefront... I don't think that just saying, well, the Bible is the answer and look to the Bible. I don't think that's always helpful. I think it's always necessary, but it's not always helpful by itself. Do you understand what I mean? It's always necessary, but it's not always helpful by itself. So if we do anything apart from pointing people to Christ, we are more like Aaron and not like Moses. We can help people with self-help and worldly advice, but we can't redeem them with it. So Christless assistance ends up creating little idols in people's lives. You have stress? Let me tell you about CBD oil or essential oils. We can help them. Right, Libby? That's me and Libby. That's why I was saying that. We can help them, but we can't redeem them with it. We can help them with their stress, but we can't redeem them with it. Maybe we tell them about this great 
psychiatrist or psychologist or this medicine that we're on. We can help them with that, but we can't redeem them with that. That without Christ is useless. And what we end up doing is we end up saying, Lord, I gave them this piece of advice and out popped this. It's a golden calf. They set up these things in their lives. People set up these things that are more important than Christ. Their psychologist, their psychiatrist is more important than Christ. Their medicine is more important than Christ. Again, you had to hear me. I've already made a disclaimer, so don't start bashing on me after this. I'm not anti-medicine. I'm not anti-talking to people. I'm not anti-counseling. Their CBD oil, their essential oils are, are more important than Christ. They're a golden calf in their life. We are not saviors. And a Christless assistance to our friends in need can help them, but it cannot redeem them. And ultimately, it's just adding another golden calf for their pantheon of idol worship. <clears throat> but also, we, when we assume things about people, instead of knowing for sure, we practically step in as a substitute. Well, I know this person says they are a Christian or, or they go to church gathering or I'm building a relationship with them that maybe one day I'll be able to bring Jesus to them. When we assume things about people, when we don't bring Christ to people, what we do is we, like Moses, well-intended sometimes, we say, I can be your substitute. God, I got this. I, they go to the church down the road. They're a part of that church. Lord, I got this. They told me they were Christian. Lord, I got this. I'm just building a relationship, working on the right time. I'll be their intercessor. When I need your help, I'll call you. Friends, Christless assistance of anybody may help people. Can't redeem them, though. Can't save them. So what do we do? We trust in the only acceptable sacrifice. Church, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Do not just say you trust in Jesus because you've trusted him for your salvation. Practically trust in him for every struggle Every opportunity of stress, every opportunity of worry, every hurt, every argument, every situation that arises at work, trust in Jesus. Don't just say, Lord, I trust you to save me, and then just walk on your own for the rest of the time. Trust in Him. Because what happens, friends, when you trust in Jesus and he proves that he is worthy of our trust, when your friends come along and they say, I need help, you won't say, well, I've got a book. You'll say, I have a God. If God is, if the Lord has done it in you, he will be the most prevalent thing you speak about when you need to do it in others. 
The reason, friends, Christ is not at the forefront of our counseling, it's not at the forefront of our friendship, it's not at the forefront of our relationship, is because practically he has not been at the forefront of our lives and our trust. There is only one acceptable sacrifice. There's only one hope in the world. And we ought to trust in him today. Pray with me. God, you are so good. And we can trust in you. And we can know that. And we can depend on you. And at the end of the day, we can say amen for all that you've done. At the end of the day, we can give you glory and honor for all that you've done and all that you are. Lord, would you help us to depend on you so that when others depend on us, we can point them to you. God, we praise you. We love you. We pray that you would bless the rest of this sermon, bless our hearts as we respond to you in communion, as we respond to you in prayer. God, you're so good. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.